Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, December the 21st, 2022. It is currently 1.10 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And I hope you're ready to go back to the discussion we started last night. We started reviewing a sermon dealing with antinomianism. And there was a little confusion at the beginning because, of course, when I begin my reviews, I don't know exactly where a sermon is going. And based off the email that I received that sent me the link to the sermon, and based off the title of the sermon, I thought the sermon was going one direction and then immediately realized, no, 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 the title really is somewhat misleading. It's not really going in that direction. And then the next thing you know, we got into some very important conversations about law, gospel, antinomianism, and we were really just getting started about preaching, uh, just so many important concepts, and then, well, our time was up. So, this afternoon, we're going to see how far we can advance this review, and hopefully it will be very beneficial. Let me remind you of something. We have been working on a very important series. In fact, I believe it's the most important series I have ever done, And the series is about the proper distinction, please hear that, the proper distinction between law and gospel. The entire Bible is made up of two very, very fundamental fundamental doctrines, law and gospel. And these fundamental doctrines are fundamentally, in a sense, they are different from one another. They are completely different. Law and gospel is completely different, and I think we must maintain the distinction. I think the problems happen in the church, in the evangelical world, is when the distinction between law and gospel is obliterated, when that distinction is goes away and they become mingled and they become merged. The minute that happens, what always occurs is law, in a sense, is maintained. The gospel becomes basically destroyed. The gospel gets written out of existence. So I believe we must maintain that proper distinction between law and gospel. And I understand when you start talking about law and gospel, and when you start talking about a justification based off imputed righteousness versus infused righteousness, that it can get very messy and it can get very complicated and it can lead to lots of confusion. And one of the things that happens frequently When you really start preaching that you are saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness, and that my, and, and that my salvation cannot be judged by a practical righteousness because my salvation is guaranteed by an imputed righteousness, almost the minute you start really trying to articulate this and work out the theological issues related to it, it's only going to take a couple of minutes before someone says, Hey, you're an antinomian. And so in the sermon that we are reviewing, I thought what he was going to do, I thought in the sermon, he was going to say, hey, you antinomians, I'm going to address, I'm going to correct you, and I'm going to show you why you're wrong. But in reality, no, 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 he's not addressing the antinomian. What he is doing is, hey, guys, anytime you preach the gospel correctly, you're going to be accused of an anti- being an antinomian. So he's going to try to, once again, answer the charge of being an antinomian. And so I think that that's, uh, I think it's interesting. I think there are more people running around accusing people of being antinomian 
than there are actual antinomians, okay? I think in some ways it's like a, a, a theological witch, uh, witch trial. It's like accusing everyone of being a witch, accusing everyone of being an antinomian, when in reality, I don't know if anyone's actually even knows what one is or has actually even met one, but that's a whole different subject that we can get into later, it's still very relevant. So if you haven't listened to our 43 plus hours of teaching on law and gospel, go listen to that. We're going to continue that series into 2023. And hopefully when we're done, it, it's going to be um, recognized for the significance that I believe it, it, it has. And because if you get law and gospel wrong, everything goes wrong. So we're going to go back and review this. Um, the uh, let, let me read the email, and then I'm going to uh, address just a couple of brief things that we've already listened to. Then we're going to back it up, and then we're just going to see how far we can go this afternoon. We'll probably we'll probably have to finish this later this afternoon or early this evening. But here we go. The email that I received was on December the 20th at 7:49 p.m. The headline, the title, the subject line was "Law and Gospel Sermon on Romans 5, verse 19 to chapter 6, verse 7." The emailer said this, the preacher preaching this said that the law and gospel distinction is solved by regeneration. Now, I'm nervous about where that's going. I have I have grave concerns where it's going, but my main issue here is we I don't think we need to solve the distinction. We must maintain the distinction between law and gospel. They're fundamentally different. They're fundamental doctrines, but they are fundamentally different. Law and gospel are different. We must not merge them. We must keep them distinct. And then this emailer says that this sermon basically goes along with their view. Okay, that's wonderful. I don't know where it's going. So we started listening. Now, the one thing he did that I did not like was he did something that lots of preachers do. I've done it when I was younger and it's foolish. But basically this is, this is what he said. Hey, the reason people don't understand this, the reason people don't understand, in other words, he's speaking for himself. The reason people don't understand our doctrinal perspective, the reason people don't agree with us is because they don't read the Bible. And that's just, I can't stand that. There are millions of disagreements in, in the body of Christ on pretty much every verse and every doctrine. And you can't say the reason oh, people over there don't agree with us or don't understand things our way is because they don't read the Bible. Because trust me, there's plenty of people on the other side who read the Bible just as much as you, love the scriptures just as much as you, but they've come to a fundamentally radically different conclusion. Why do they come to a different conclusion? I think there are two major issues. Clearly, there's hermeneutical issues. They may be using a completely different hermeneutical system. So you have to first agree upon the hermeneutical perspective. What is the hermeneutical method you're going to use? But number two, and I think this is a fundamental problem in every single church, is that we take our, we take a theological system and we lay it on top of the Bible and then we read the Bible through the lens of that theology. So then, of course, everything in the Bible seems to agree with that theology because we're reading the Bible through it. In other words, we're almost inserting our theology into the Bible and then say, look, it's right there. If people would just read the Bible well, they're sitting in their church going and they place their theology system on the Bible, they read it and say, see, it's right there. If people would just read the Bible. No, everyone's reading their theology. They're not actually reading the scripture. And we've talked about that, and I could go into far more detail about that. It's a major, major problem, and, uh, well, we've got, we've got to get rid of that. I talked about it last night in our review. So, so his, I don't like the fact that he did that, that 
hey, if you would just read it, if you would just read it, then you would understand with us. I mean, that's just, that's an arrogance. And, and, and I know I've done the same thing, said the same thing, but I wish he wouldn't have done that. And then he's making a, a very valid point, and that's what we're going to listen to to ease us back into the review, that, hey, if you truly preach the gospel correctly, you're going to be accused of being an antinomian. Now, the problem that well, my concern is, okay, he's going to try to say, hey, we're not antinomian, but what's he going to use to prove that an, an, he's not an antinomian? Is he going to end up, well, blur? blurring the lines between law and gospel. Is, is, is the gospel of grace going to be impacted? We'll see. Let's jump back in and let's see how far we can make it on this Wednesday afternoon. Coming to you live from the Theology Central Studios here in West Texas, we are about to engage in sermon review. For those new, I don't listen to these first. I like to listen to them in real time with you. So my reactions my thoughts are all happening in real time. Sometimes that's wonderful. Sometimes it's not. But I hope you will uh, find it to be informative, interesting, spiritually beneficial. And of course, I love to have a little bit of fun as we're reviewing these. The key is not to attack someone. The key is to say, give me your best position. I may agree or disagree. It's not about attacking anyone. It's about learning and being exposed to different perspectives and being challenged. So let's be challenged. Let's sit back. Hopefully, hopefully you have something to drink. Let's get started. I've told you all before that if your gospel presentations, when you personally witness to people and tell them about the Christian faith and talk to them about Jesus Christ and how a person can be made right with God and end up in heaven, if your witnessing does not elicit the charge of antinomianism, you are not preaching the gospel correctly. If you don't get this charge, you are not preaching it right. No. And I love that. And I'm glad he's so forceful. And, 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 and sadly, I'll just have to be honest with my own failure. I was not accused of antinomianism until 2022. But the person who accused me of antinomianism, I'm grateful for because that proves that I'm, I am preaching the gospel right. Now, what was bizarre is the person who accused me of antinomianism also then accused me of not preaching the gospel, basically. So I don't know exactly how that, that it, it was all confusing. But I'm, I, I see it now. Look, if I was accused of antinomianism in 2022, then I'm doing something right. And I know what I'm doing. I'm trying to preach the gospel that we are saved by an imputed righteousness. We are not saved by an infused righteousness. And anything that goes in that idea of an infused righteousness, whether they intend to do so or not, I'm going to condemn and going to stand against. If I want to believe that we are saved by an infused righteousness, I'll become a Roman Catholic because that's Roman Catholicism. Imputed. So, And I think the minute you truly emphasize that in a practical way, People will say amen to you saying that we're saved by an imputed righteousness. But when you begin to take that theology and then break it down into very practical ways, people will immediately get nervous, go, no, 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 no. They've got to do this. They've got, if they don't do this, then they're not saved. You're like, well, wait a minute. How are you judging their action to prove imputed righteousness? Because imputed righteousness is simply accredited. You can't judge action to prove imputed righteousness. 
If you want to prove imputed righteousness, you got to go challenge the person who, in a sense, their righteousness is being imputed to this person. And you can go test Jesus all day, and he's always going to demonstrate that he's perfectly righteous, and that righteousness is accredited in my account. You can't test me, right? So then the minute you start saying that, they're like, you're an antinomian. You believe in easy believism. And they start throwing all of these accusations at you. Well, that typically means you're actually preaching imputed righteousness. If you want infused righteousness, find the local Catholic church. Why do I say this? Because Paul got this objection from his hearers and from his enemies all the time, which is why he brings the objection up and then answers it in his letters. If we don't get the same objection from our hearers and from our enemies, we are not preaching the gospel correctly. Now, Christians have dealt with this charge from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Christians have had to hear the objection. You're saying that we can live like the devil and still go to heaven. You're saying it doesn't matter how we live. All we got to do is tip our hat to Jesus, walk an aisle, check a little box, and all's good, I'm going to heaven. People have said to the heralds of the true gospel over and over again, you are nullifying the law altogether and giving people permission to live like dogs. You are preaching licentiousness. You are preaching a dangerous message that will lead to loose living. You're saying that a man can live like the devil and still get into heaven. As one Roman Catholic fellow told me many years ago when I shared the gospel with him, he said, you just make it sound way too easy. And that warmed my heart. (laughs) How do we answer these objections? First, I'd like to point out that there's always a temptation, folks. There's always a temptation to make final salvation or final judgment or final justification depend at least in some kind of nuanced way on our works. Okay, this is important. There's a lot of this kind of been going around for a while, and I'm not going to go back and trace the source and everything right now, but this idea of a final justification, a final judgment. In other words, you're saved by an imputed righteousness, but that final justification, that final judgment is not based off imputed righteousness. It's based off our works. Now, I know the Bible constantly says you will be judged according to your works. And I say amen to that. I will be. I will be judged according to my works. And guess what? Guess what works are now mine by imputation? The works of Christ. So I can stand and say, judge me according to my works because the works that's been imputed to me is Christ's passive and active obedience. So if you want to say that there is a final justification, a final judgment that's based on works alone, fine, say that. I'm good because the works of Christ is imputed to me. So guess what? I've kept the law. I've loved God. I've done everything absolutely correctly. So that's the only way I think you can get around that. This this idea of a second justification that's a by works is, is frightening to me because it's a complete abandonment of a salvation by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. It is literally just another, it's a Protestant version of Roman Catholicism. And that's coming from someone who went to a Catholic school to get a degree in Catholic theology. That, that it's, it's ridiculous for that, for that even to, to, to be seen or, 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 or thought of in the Protestant world. But the Protestant world is really entertaining and bracing this. No, 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 no. You got to understand this. Your initial salvation, your initial justification, that was by grace alone. That was by imputed righteousness. But when you get to the end, dun, dun, da, da, now it's going to be based off your works. Now, just think if that's true. If there's any part of 
justification, salvation, or judgment that's based apart of our works, then everyone's going to hell because that would demand that we are perfect because God's standard is be ye holy as I am holy. If you have violated one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So if the final justification or judgment is related on works in any way, shape, or form, then our works would have to be perfect. Even Roman Catholics understand that much. That's why you have to go to purgatory to have it all purged out so that you can finally get in. And the Protestant world is like, no, you're saved. And, and, and some of the Protestant world who's going with this secondary salvation justification concept, it's like initially it starts off by grace, but at the end it's by works. But for some weird reason, they think that it doesn't require perfect work and you can still get in. No, 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 no. If, if, if there's any judgment according to works, they, they, it will be judged by the perfect standard. So every one of my works would have to be perfect because guess what? All of my works are going to burn up. I don't care how good you think your works are. They're going to burn up because they're all tainted and they're all corrupted to some level with sin. The temptation is to say that our faith in Jesus Christ will be confirmed and and shown to be true by our works and that our final acceptance into heaven will be in accord with those works that we've done with the help of God's grace. The temptation is to put people back under the law as a covenant of works that they must at least partially keep in order to finally get into heaven at the last day. Now, please note, that's the problem. Partially keep. The law doesn't accept partial credit. It doesn't accept partial effort. It demands perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. And when you, and again, don't you just realize how utterly evil this idea of the secondary justification, secondary salvation thing is, because it's saying that there's somehow your actions can conform, confirm your being you, you getting imputed righteousness. Look, there is nothing you can do to prove you have imputed righteousness because it is imputed. It's accredited to you. It doesn't make you righteous. It doesn't make you do things. It just says you're an unrighteous sinner. But guess what? Guess what's been given to you today? All of the perfection of Christ. So if someone wants to test if I've been given that, well, they can't test me. Look, someone who has imputed righteousness, when you test them, you know what you're going to learn about them? They're still a sinner. But their salvation is not based off the fact that they're still a sinner. It's based off the fact they've been given imputed righteousness. So if you want to test someone, you've got to test the one who gave them the righteousness to see if that imputed righteousness is good enough. So if you want to test someone to see if I'm saved, go test Jesus because it's his righteousness that's been given to me. You're testing the wrong person. The temptation is to answer the charge of antinomianism by saying, no, no, no. You see, salvation is a broader category in Scripture than than merely justification. And it includes sanctification. And final salvation is that which is in accord with our works, but it's not on the basis of works. We're saved through our works, but not really on the grounds of our works. Doesn't that make sense? No, that's pretty confusing, isn't it? Many people get... And saying that's that little game. You're not saved by your works, but if you don't have the works, you're not saved. Well, then I am saved by my works. No, 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 no. No, we're saved by grace, but you got to have works. 
Okay, so so I am saved by an imputed righteousness, but I have to have works. Well, yeah, but if I don't have works, then I'm not saved. So therefore, I am saved by works. Well, you're not saved by it. You're saved through it. It's this. It's it's playing little games because there's something inside the heart of man who won't accept imputed righteousness. We got to believe that we're doing something so that we get a little bit of the glory. We get a little bit of the credit. We don't get any because it's an imputed righteousness. So tired of the charge that we are licentious and that we're preaching antinomianism that they they will just give in. They'll give in and make the gospel at least slightly dependent upon some kind of nuanced law keeping. And my friends, such compromises are not only an error, they are fatal to the gospel and fatal to the church. Why? I look, when you when you when we compromise that way and we bring in some kind of works in any way, shape, or form, it is listen, it is fatal to the gospel. You destroy the gospel. You literally destroy the gospel. And you have a law-based system no matter what you say. I completely agree with this. Because of our acceptance into heaven at the last day and at the last judgment is in some way dependent upon our works, our law-keeping, Christ died for nothing. That's not my position. That's not Sproul. That's not the, the Reformed divines. That's not Calvin. That is the apostolic position in the Word of God. Galatians 2.21. Look it up. Memorize it. We are justified by the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is a righteousness that is and always will be completely and entirely outside of us. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. We are saved by a righteousness that will, that has always been, always will be, forever will be outside of us. It's not a righteousness in us that saves us. It's a righteousness outside of us. It's an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. But, but, but Christians want to say yes to that, but then immediately they go like, but, 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 if you don't do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, you got to show me something. You got to show me something. If something isn't different, then you're not saved. Well, you can't judge imputed righteousness like that. That's literally the opposite of imputed. Just go join a Catholic church and believe in an infused righteousness. Then you can demand that you do this, this, and this, and this, and this. And then you can say, well, you did this, and this, and this. You're no longer in a state of grace. You need to do this, and this, and this in order to get back. And then you're going to die. Go to purgatory if you die in a state of grace. And then after you get purged, you'll get into heaven. And, and, And Protestants will be like, that's ridiculous. That's ungodly. I believe in imputed righteousness. But if you don't do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, you're not saved. You reject imputed righteousness as fast as you say it. It is legally credited to our account. It does not adhere within us. The righteousness by which we are justified before God the day we believe and by which we are finally received into heaven at the last judgment is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Our works of sanctification, our works of putting sin to death, our works of pursuing holiness, our faith working through love, our obedience of faith do not figure into our verdict of justified at the last day at all. Martin Luther said this, quote, A Christian is righteous and holy by an alien or foreign righteousness, 
I call it this for the sake of instruction. That is, he is righteous by the mercy and grace of God. It is a divine blessing given us through the, the true knowledge of the gospel when we know or believe that our sin has been forgiven through the grace and merit of Christ. Is not this righteousness an alien righteousness? It consists completely in the indulgence of another and is a pure gift of God who shows mercy and favor for Christ's sake. End quote. Every person in this room needs to understand this. And every pastor and everyone that may one day be a pastor needs to preach this and labor to make it crystal clear. Anyone who muddies this truth or buries it in obscure or confusing language expressions or terminology should never be allowed into a pulpit to preach anywhere at all, let alone to a church of Christian people. The righteousness by which we are justified before God, listen, is the very same righteousness by which alone we make it past the final judgment of God and are given entrance into heaven itself. The righteousness of Christ alone. Luther also said this, quote, If the article of justification is lost, all Christian doc doctrine is lost at the same time. And all the people in the world who do not hold to this justification are either Jews or Turks or Papists or heretics. For there is no middle ground between these two righteousnesses, the act of one of the law and the passive one which comes from Christ. Therefore, the man who strays from Christian righteousness must relapse into the active one. That is, since he has lost Christ, he must put his confidence in his own works. You see, it's one or the other. What Man, that's some pow those are powerful statements. Powerful statements. And we have to, we, this is like, this is like, you have to stand your ground on this. Like, this is where, this is like a line in the sand. And you're like, no, 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 no. You are not going to muddle and mess up the idea that we are saved by an imputed righteousness by finding some way to insert work into it. If it's imputed, then it's Christ, period. End of story. Whatever we do or don't do can't have bearing on my salvation because it's imputed. It's outside of me. It's not inside of me. So if you come to me and say, you must pass this 14-point test to prove you're saved, fine, give me the 14-point test. I'm going to take it to the one who gave me perfect righteousness. I'm going to say, Jesus, can you take this test? And then I'm going to come back and say, I, I, look, I got an A. Is that good enough for you? Is that good enough for MacArthur, Jonathan Edwards, and everyone else who comes up with their test of supposedly how you prove you're saved? Give me any test. Jesus takes the test. He already passed the test for me. And guess what he did? He also died for my failure of your test. So in either way, my sins are forgiven. So I'm, I'm already forgiven for failing it. And then B, I've been given a positive imputed righteousness from Christ so I, I can pass the test moving forward because I'm covered in perfect righteousness. But that's not good enough in the minds of most Christians. No, 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 no. You've got to do something. You've got to do something. You've got to do something. Okay, that's fine. You no longer are a Protestant. You're no longer a non-Catholic. You are a Catholic. So you go to the Catholic church. I'm going to go to the non-Catholic church. We're going to teach imputed righteousness. You teach infused righteousness. And then everything is simple and clean. It's, everything is simple, clean, and it's easy to understand. But it's when you're claiming to be a non-Catholic while basically teaching a version of, of Catholicism light. 
but you're calling it biblical Christianity when all it is is Catholicism. It's you into heaven is either Christ or you by yourself. It's one or the other. Throughout church history, the charge has been made. It is being made, and it will be made against every child in this room as they grow up, against every grandchild that's ever born to anyone in this room, and against our great-grandchildren if Christ tarries and is coming again. The charge will be made that the gospel, when it's preached properly, leads to antinomianism, and it leads to loose, sinful, and licentious living. And folks, if we do not answer this charge the way Paul's done, then legalism will rule the day and the church will be destroyed. If we do not answer this charge as the Bible does, our children will be doomed to listen to Galatian Judaizers all their days. In the name of deflecting the charge of antinomianism, they will hinge final salvation on our obedience of faith or faith working through love. Any doctrine that would have the sinner relying and the final analysis upon anything they have done is a false gospel and it will not and cannot save them. And therefore, we must be ready to answer the charge of antinomianism and we must prepare our descendants to answer it as well. The greatest historical debate over the issue of grace happened early on in church history between the great Augustine of Hippo and the British monk Pelagius in the 4th and 5th centuries. The Pelagians said, can anyone guess? The Pelagians said that what Augustine taught about how we're saved will lead to loose living. It will lead to antinomianism. The Pelagians charged the gospel of free grace with being a license to sin, antinomian. That's what, that's what always happens. When, when, when the, the, the human mind, which is law-based, hears the doctrine of free grace, the doctrine of free salvation based off an imputed righteousness, immediately it's like, no, 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 no. You, you can't say that. You can't. Are you saying I don't have to do anything? Are you say-? And immediately they start just going full law blown in their, in their thinking. And then they end up basically becoming legal Judaizers who wants to accuse you of being an antinomian. And they're going to walk around and their self-righteous pride thinking, Hey, Hey, he's, he's over there teaching antinomian. Look at me. Look at how I live. Look at my life. Well, you look at your life. It's not good enough even by, by any standard. So you looking to say that you have to do something and thinking that somehow proves you're saved your actions, no matter how good they are, would never yet prove you're saved because to prove you're saved would demand you meet the righteous demands of the law, which would be perfection. So all of your little tests you come up with to prove you're saved was going to lead you to realize that you are lost because those tests are law-based, which never show salvation. They always show condemnation. That's why you can only be saved by an imputed righteousness and you can only find assurance from, uh, you can only find assurance from imputed righteousness. When the great reformation answered Rome's false gospel of justification by grace-enabled works righteousness with the biblical truth of justification by faith alone and Christ alone on the sole legal grounds of Christ's righteousness and cross work, Rome answered the reformation exactly the way the Pelagians did. The Roman Catholic theologians in the counter-reformation said that the Reformation's gospel will lead to loose living. It will lead to antinomianism. They said to the Reformers, you're saying people can live like the devil and still get to heaven. You know who else made the same charge? The Arminians. 
Arminians lodged the same complaint against the Reformed churches. The Arminians taught that true Christians could lose their salvation by sinning, thus teaching that we maintain our salvation and ultimately save ourselves by our works. The Reformed churches taught that justification and getting into heaven was by faith alone and Christ alone. And the Arminian response to that was, you're saying that we can sin so that grace may abound. You're saying we can live like the devil and still get into heaven. Charles Finney in the early 19th century said that if justification is by faith alone and not by the sinner's obedience to the law, then antinomianism must be true. We can sin all we want and still go to heaven. John Wesley, at various times in his career, said the same thing. If you teach justification by faith alone, apart from the sinner's obedience, then we have to be antinomians, and we must say that we can live like the devil and still go to heaven. In fact, many people are not aware of this, but John Wesley himself said in the Methodist Minutes, he called the doctrine of justification, as spelled out by the Westminster Confession, quote, imputed nonsense, end quote. Will we and our children... And their children hear these same charges? I promise you they will. I guarantee you they will. And they are. And we are. So, let us walk through this glorious passage and look at how God answers the charge of antinomianism in the face of a gospel of getting to heaven by faith alone and not in any consideration of our works at all. How does God answer this charge? Let's look at Romans 5.19. Look at Okay, now, that gets us right up to where he's about to launch in to the text. Now, I don't want to do this, but in another way, I do, because um, I want to break this up a little bit, right? I, I know that I could just press through, but I want to leave it here for you to give this time to really, uh, I want you to really consider this. I want you to contemplate this, because this is serious, right? That, that, that people constantly make this charge of antinomianism and it's utter, complete nonsense that they make this charge because in many cases, antinomian has become a boogeyman that anyone who wants to really teach imputed righteousness is going to be accused of. There's something inside of us. There's something inside of man that, that so desperately, so desperately uh, wants to take some kind of credit. We want to s somehow have something to boast in. Look, we are saved by an imputed righteousness. It has nothing to do with us. That righteousness is outside of us. It is alien to us. It is foreign to us. So whenever, and I know as Christians, we're so afraid, I guess, that, that you know, no, 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 no. You're going to be living in sin. You're going to be living in sin. Look, you're going to be living it. No matter, I look, I know Christians don't like to hear this. You're going to be living in sin no matter how much you think you're not. Because there's constant sin in your life and constant sin in my life. Is that excused? No. Do we fight against it? Yes. Should we strive against it? Yes. But my salvation cannot be judged on the presence of it or the lack thereof. My salvation is based off an imputed righteousness. And if you want to give me a test, I don't care what you put on the test. I know MacArthur's test. I've read Jonathan Edwards' test. All the different tests you want to give me, fine, give me the test. And I'm going to be like, here's the thing. I have already scored an A on your test because Jesus has imputed his righteousness to me. So if you really want to test me based off of the doctrine of imputed righteousness, you have to go test Jesus. And he's going to pass it. But if you give me your test, 
which is law-based, anyone who's honest will realize that they fell the test and that they are a sinner. How people take these arbitrary tests to prove salvation and then walk away thinking that they pass it, one, doesn't actually understand the law. Remember, here is the standard. Be ye holy as I am holy. That's actual scripture. Guess what? You never pass it. So I don't care how you want to try to play little word games with your test. Everyone's going to fail because that's the test. Be holy as God is holy. Or as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect. That's the test. Are you perfect? No. Well, then you prove you're not saved. Well, you're right. I do prove I'm not saved because I will never be good enough to prove that I'm saved. So how do I know that I'm saved? Not on what I do, but on what Christ did based off the fact that I was saved by an imputed righteousness by faith alone. We have to get that down. Now, he's going to try to answer the charge from of antinomianism by looking at Romans 5 to Romans 6. I'm very nervous on where this is going to go, but we will address that and finish this review coming up. We'll try to uh, we'll try to do this around 3 or 3:30 p.m. and I hope that around that time, it will be very beneficial. I am going to take a little bit of time just to let this sit with you. And then you can you can pause this and, well, I'm going to stop it. And then you can think about it. You may wait till tomorrow to listen to the next part. But I re- want us to really, really understand the significance of this. And what ways, I'll end with this, have you in your own life or have your ch- has your church infused, I'm going to use that word, infused works into justification. And in so doing, they have destroyed the gospel and destroyed the doctrine of imputed righteousness. You can give me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at at yahoo.com, and we will be back to finish this review in a couple of hours. Think about it in the meantime. Email me in the meantime, newsif at yahoo.com. And I look forward to us bringing this to a very important conclusion because I think breaking it up this way will add more impact to it because I cannot cannot overstate the significance of this discussion. Thanks for listening. God bless.